Let's continue to talk politics. Uh, Neil Jones and Tim Hurdle in with us this morning. Kia ora korua. Kia ora. G'day. Um, and just before we get started, let's talk about your backgrounds, both of you. Neil Jones, Chief of Staff, who was Chief of Staff to Labour leader Jacinda Ardern, and before that, Chief of Staff to Andrew Little. He's the Director of Public Affairs firm Capital. And Tim Hurdle, a former National Party advisor and was campaign director for National at the 2020 election. Now, of course, let's talk cyclone and recovery and the central government response. Um, Neil, if I can come to you first. Uh, what a week. Yeah, I mean, we were here a week ago just before the cyclone hit, and I don't think anyone would have foreseen it would have been as devastating as it was. Yeah, absolutely astonishing. Um, have people stepped up? Of course, it's a very early test for uh, the new Prime Minister. Have people stepped up in the way that you would have wanted to see? Yeah, like, I mean, when even Heather de Plessis Allen is writing columns saying Chris Hipkins is doing a good job, I think we can say he probably is. Um, you know, he has had the experience of being the Minister for COVID-19 response, but it is a big step up to be PM. I think he's demonstrated he can do that as well as Jacinda Ardern could. A different style, perhaps, but I think he has not put a foot wrong. And also Kieran McAnulty, a relatively new minister, newly in cabinet. Um, he's been very self-assured. I think people often look at crisis politics and they say, well, it's easy. And I guess it seems easy until you see it done wrong. And Wayne Brown in the Auckland floods showed how you can do it wrong. Similarly, Donald Trump's a great example through COVID about doing crisis response wrong. So it is actually harder than you think. The other thing I think is I, I think Christopher Luxon deserves some praise for his conduct over the last week. It's very hard when you're in opposition and there's a crisis. Everyone's looking to the government. The government are the only people who really matter in politics because they're responding. And as the opposition, you know, you can feel like you're standing around with your hands in your pockets. And it can be tempting to sort of lash out, politicise, try and get yourself in the media. And the public just don't want to hear that in the early stages. There comes a time later on when you're doing the broader response where you can start to unpick that. But in those early days, they don't want to hear it. And I mean, Simon Bridges fell afoul of that during COVID. And Luxon's done well, I think, very constructive, um, and even sort of talked about the need to work together on issues around climate adaptation and retreat. I, I just think David Seymour, perhaps, I think he hit a bum note. Um, I think he looked out of touch when he demanded Parliament, you know, all the MPs returned to Parliament for question time when, you know, communities were being devastated. And he also made comments, you know, nitpicking the national emergency declaration. He said Labour loves a crisis. I, I just think he was completely out of touch. Mm. Tim, what's your assessment? Yeah, I broadly agree with Neil. I mean, the situation we're in now is um, no one's terribly interested in politics out in the public. They're expecting their leaders to step up and lead. Um, sadly, we've got a long recent history of quite spectacular and major disasters. I was quite heavily involved in the Canterbury earthquake um, response, and a big part of that was the fact that you have to communicate and engage with the public. The minute that anyone was terribly partisan... Um, it pretty much got very much frowned upon, um, you know. And then I worked a lot with the Honourable um, Jim Anderton, for example, who was very, very positive and engaged with the government. And if anything, um, it meant that the the government response was better. But also, the opposition was a very responsible thing, and he was very well respected in his electorate for that. So, I think he's. I think Neil's point around uh, Christopher Luxon that he's doing the right thing too, which is not trying to play politics with this because no one's interested in it. Yeah, I think I did see somewhere um, Christopher Luxon was asked about whether his tax package was still on the table. 
um, of course, when clearly there's going to be a, a pretty hefty bill coming down the track because of what has happened. And I, I think at this stage, uh, that is still where things are at. Tim, do you think that's a reasonable position to be taking? Yeah, because you, the the scale of the government um, budget is, uh, you know, 70, 80 million, billion dollars uh, and a tax package may be only a small proportion of that. There will be some large capital requirements, there will be some large expenditure requirements, but there are other areas um, of the budget that might get changed. I think some of the budget priorities around transport will probably change and there'll probably need to be some um, adjustment to um, other expenditures to see what the priorities are to really focus on protecting, um, bringing those regions back and recovering their economies. I, I, I agree with Tim that you know we don't really have actually a debt problem in New Zealand. We have a capacity problem. That's going to be the big challenge. And I was quite it was quite refreshing to see Simon Bridges actually saying, um, I think over the weekend that. Mm. Um, you know, we have relatively low debt in New Zealand. It's remarkable how when you leave politics you can kind of set aside these myths that we sort of hear so much day to day. Um, but I, I do think, you know, the question of what will the impact of Cyclone Gabriel be on the 2023 election, I think it's too early to assess. Mm. And it's possible that, you know, we saw last year with the Queensland flood the impact that had on the Australian election. Climate change became a major issue. It kind of helped crowd out other issues. Similarly, I mean, on the on the flip side, though, in 2011, we had the big earthquake in Christchurch in February. By November, that was not the major election issue. So, you know, people's lives do move on um, outside the direct area affected. You know, the cost of living crisis will still be here. So I, I don't I don't think we can say that Cyclone Gabriella and, and the aftermath is the election issue. I think cost of living will remain a very big issue. The question, I guess, for National and their tax policy is how that's going to look when you've got a major infrastructure investment required and a recovery to pay for and a cost of living crisis, which might be exacerbated by you know, food and transport damage. Mm. Is giving tax cuts to landlords or people in higher incomes going to be that, that palatable? I would use this as an opportunity if I was them to basically, they have got under review, maybe kill it and come back with something new closer to the election. Tim, do you think that's one that is likely to be taken up? Well, I think probably the government's also looking at this as the chance to kill their light rail project because I would imagine that the people of Auckland are far more interested in uh, seeing some of the roads repaired out in West Auckland than they are a new rail system in 20 years' time. And similarly, I think, um, the, to Neil's point, the the capital budget will be the, where the pressure comes on and the need to expend on things like the new roading links into Northland. Um, but the, um, the, the tax revenues and how you distribute and cut them up is a slightly different thing from how we are going to spend money on new infrastructure because that's that's apportioned out over a longer period, 30, 40, 50 years, not, not this year's budget. And I think with the pressure on people's household budgets, only going to be exacerbated by this event because we're going to see a lot of pressure on crops. If you go into any supermarket in the upper North Island right now, you can see some incredible impacts on the availability and prices. And you're also going to see that coming through in building uh, materials costs costs of labour, costs of uh, trades, and those sort of things are going to have a real impact on that cost of living. It's going to only make that problem a lot worse. If I can pick up on what Tim said around labour using it as an opportunity, uh, whether or not light rail's on the chopping block, I do think this what's happened over the last week does kind of raise the importance of Chris Hipkins' exercise of chopping back what he calls non-essentials. Um, he made the argument at the time it wasn't just about saving costs, it was actually about the government's broad, like, um, its bandwidth. And you know anyone who's worked around parliament and government knows that 
there are only so many hours in the day. There are only so many ministers, mm. advisors, officials who can work on an issue. And I think with the with the recovery from Gabrielle, the major infrastructure investment needed for resilience and the cost of living crisis, I think Hipkins will need to put out, I think, quite a, set out quite a realistic view to the public of what can be achieved between now and the election. Indeed. Are there a couple of things, though, that will come into question and, you know, will either come more to the fore or perhaps move more into the background? I know this was talked around um, at the time of the Auckland flooding, but where does all of this leave Three Waters? Well, I mean, it's currently under review, and I think the political problem hasn't gone away and that the government has um, mismanaged this, um, you know, this is one of the history books on how not to manage an issue, and they will need to find a way through that. But I, I do think it does raise, you know, it does raise the issue about why Three Waters was being done in the first place, which is that our infrastructure is, you know, has horrendous underinvestment. And we saw in Auckland, for example, and I, I haven't looked closely enough at the recent floods to see, but we've seen how degraded infrastructure has made the problem worse. And so I think the case for change has been strengthened, but the government still has to make the case for what they want to do and why that's the best option. And Tim, from the national perspective, does it change anything regarding Three Waters? Uh, certainly driving around the countryside, you see an awful lot of uh, you know, the billboards up saying you know, National will repeal and replace that policy. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing with the Three Waters was the third water was always stormwater. It was always very unclear what was going to happen there. We saw how, how damaging stormwater can be in this current event. Um, I think there were a whole bundle of issues in the Three Waters that were um, unresolved, that were unrelated to this event, it's probably highlighted the importance of things like um, environmental controls on rivers and things like that, stop banks. Uh, but those probably sat outside um, the new entities' uh, remits. They sit with regional councils. So it will be a question of um, thinking more carefully about how we manage our rivers, uh, but that might necessarily mean that we're going to the corporate model we have for three waters. I do have to say, though, I do think National is going to have to come up with a policy. I don't think in the wake of all this it's acceptable to say we'll repeal and replace and we're not telling what we'll, telling you what we'll do. Nonetheless, though, um, does it also raise some questions around um, sort of centralised models versus more local control of models? Is that something that comes into this, do you think, Neil? I, I don't think this, that Cyclone Gabrielle is an argument against central government having, you know, being capable and strong and centralisation. There are obviously areas where local government is best placed to deliver things, an area where central government is, and that's why we have this model we have. But, I mean, if you look at the immediate response, civil defence is pretty devolved um, we're yet to, you know, we'll, we'll see through time how well that response what went, but ultimately there was a national declaration of emergency it was the NZDF that sent in Unimogs and the Navy, it wasn't the Hawke's Bay Regional Navy or the Hawke's Bay Unimogs that went in, um, and you know, it was the police, it was, it was fire emergency this is, you know, and the recovery will be funded by, you know, the national wealth of all New Zealanders, you know, you couldn't look at Gisborne and say you've got 37,000 people, go fix yourselves up, so you know, a country of five million people on some pretty shaky, shaky aisles that are very vulnerable. I, I think this disaster, if anything, shows that yes, work constructively with locals, but we need a strong, capable central government that can actually pull our whole national resource at times like this. Although the, the counter question for me, the interesting one is, you know, places like the Hawke's Bay and Northland have seen their polytex control moved back to the centre, back to Wellington. They've lost um, the DHBs from those those towns, so. Everything has got very centralised into Wellington under this government. 
Um, there was a big pressure at the last election to build a new hospital in Hawke's Bay. There was considerable pressure in Northland for new roads um, to be to be funded. And I guess this is going to bring a question around those areas, around what has been delivered for those provinces and those regions that need that investment and support and what entities are being left um, to create the institutional frameworks and capacity in those regions to respond to events like this. And do questions also need to be answered around, you know, perhaps in a more pressing manner, around climate change, around mitigation, around managed retreat? And that, again, coming back to the fore with James Shaw and Todd Muller of National seemingly reviving their collaboration. Yeah, look, I think I said last week that this is the sort of issue, um, managed retreat, adaptation, that we don't want to become a political football. Mm. It needs to have certainty across many governments. It needs to, you know, we have really, really difficult issues about communities having to move, about people's whole livelihoods being at risk and how we pay for that. And that would be very easy for parties to sort of throw muck at each other. But actually, we are best served if they work together. And I think James Shaw and Todd Muller, two very sensible politicians, um, I think they, for the same rationale for why they work together on the Zero Carbon Bill exists here. And I hope they can come together um, as parties and come to an agreement. I, I do think, though, we have to be careful that we don't shift the entire conversation to adaptation and managed retreat and away from emissions reduction. Um, you know, this is what climate change looks like at one degree's warming. When we get to two, three, even four or more degrees, you know, it's going to get far, far worse. And so we have to have as much energy tackling climate change, the emissions, as we have dealing with the consequences. Mm, yeah, I think that was something that James Shaw talked about last week, mm. a few days ago, with yeah. the, the yeah, idea... Yeah, you have a very good speech in Parliament on yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was it was on that where he mentioned that, you know, it can't just be about the mitigation and, and you know, every tenth of a degree warmer it gets, the worse this is going mm. to get. And, you know, how, how do you think this will be... Um, Handled? Do you think there is that appetite, Tim, for for this to be a, a sort of a, a cross-party um, effort? Yeah, I think there will be um, a deliberate effort by all parties to try and create some certainty in this space, to look at what issues they can um, find common ground on, and work out how much we can make some progress on these issues. Because um, New Zealanders will be expecting that to happen. What about an early election? Is that is that a bit out there, Tim? The talk of uh, of going to the polls early? Oh, I think so. I don't think the the country's interested in that. Um, traditionally, the politicians have been um, punished by going to the the polls too early. I think um, also it, it is now in a situation where we're basically in a national state of emergency. Large parts of the country, north of, um, well, you know, even south of Taupo now are in in pretty bad way. I don't think anybody would be very excited about getting into an election campaign right now. Would they, Neil? <laughs> Look, I think an early election campaign, and the rationale is Labor's got a bump from Hipkins, they're looking good, they've got the momentum, National's been left quite exposed, why don't they go early? I think that's the kind of thing that sounds compelling when you're sort of wargaming political strategy down at the pub. I think in the real world, if voters get the slightest sniff that you are gaming the system for political advantage that doesn't go down well. Uh, Justin Trudeau tried this in 2021 to try and get a majority off his poll bump from COVID. Um, he didn't get his majority. In fact, his polls tanked and he barely scraped back in. And the reflection there was you were sent to Parliament to do a job, get it done, and come back to us when you've, when you've finished your time. And I just think, you know, particularly now with the cyclone, when you've got devastation, people's lives uprooted, people dead, you know, any whiff of that, I just think we go down terribly. So, 
you know, Chris Hipkins has nine months, or probably a bit less now, mm. to actually get on with the job of dealing with this crisis, dealing with cost of living, showing he's up to it. And if I can just say, if I if I was conspiratorial, I look mm. at where this is coming from. Yeah, I was going to say, where is this coming from? Well, then? I mean, look, Luke, Luke Malpass is a good journalist, I think, did a column on this, but... Mm. I've seen a lot of it from the political right, and I, I do wonder how much of it is about um, people in the National Party sort of trying to draw attention to Christopher Luxon's weakness rather than anything about Chris Hipkins and Labour. Yeah, Tim, it wasn't a great poll for National that came out, what, about a week ago? Yeah, I think it's a reflection of the fact that the balance of media coverage has been with Hipkins and Labour. People are still interested in uh, reflecting in the sort of new Prime Minister, a new approach, um, seeing where it's going. And I think um, the National Party hasn't really been aggressively pushing out policies or ideas that it would capture um, capture ground. So I think it's probably um, a good wake-up to the National Party to start thinking about how they're going to create some momentum in those polls. Kia ora, thank you to both of you. That's Tim Hurdle and Neil Jones, our political commentators today.